Thank you for joining me for the podcast. I am Rick Thomas. You are listening to Your Daily Drive, and I'm so glad that you are here. The title of this podcast is The Wisdom in Giving Your Friends Room to Sin. I'm talking about overlooking offenses. We don't have to jump everybody about every mistake that they make, and sometimes there is wisdom in giving your friends room to sin. I'm not talking about condoning sin. I would never do that. We should have no tolerance for sin. But how we respond to sin versus how we think about sin in our hearts as it pertains to other people, well, we want to be careful here because our approach to other people needs to be just like Jesus's approach to other people. It needs to be redemptive, not punitive. And so this podcast and the article on the website will be fantastic for you to share with your small group. It would be great to share with anyone that you are in close relationship with. Husband and wife would be fantastic if you guys could lay down in bed tonight and read this article or read it during dinner time with your family, parents and children, siblings. This would be great for that too. Any context. Because the truth is, sin happens to all of us. Death, taxes, and being sinful are assured until Jesus comes back to take us home. Now, in this podcast, I'm not going to talk about death and taxes. I'm not all that qualified about those two subjects. But it is about the prospects of being sinful, a sad reality we can never entirely eradicate from our lives. That is what I want to talk about. Now, this podcast will apply even to our friends or family members who are not believers because we don't want to get in the way of those who sin, those unbelieving friends and family members who sin. Again, we want to be like Christ. And so it really applies to our friends who are regenerated by God and for our friends who have yet to be regenerated by God. We want to give them space We want to have the wisdom to know when to overlook, and we want to have the courage and the compassion to always move toward them in redemptive ways, not in sinful, angry ways, not in punitive ways. And it is true, we can talk about sin in this podcast for believers, because sin for the Christian is not depressing in this sense because we have hope. I'm not talking about being sin-centered. Nobody wants to go on sin hunts or be sin-centered, but we don't have to be depressed about it. We don't have to fall into despair because of sin, whether it's ours or someone else's, because we have hope. We have faith because of Jesus. And being in Christ positions us for a better perspective about the darker side of our lives while giving us more ability to overcome the disappointing truths about our depravity. In 1 Corinthians 15, it says, If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are, of all people, most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And in Romans 8, 37, Paul says, I'm breaking into the middle of his doxology here. He says, no, in all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Christ died 
but he rose from the grave. And because of the power of the resurrection, we can talk about our problems openly, transparently, vulnerably, in weakness, in humility, because we have hope in Christ. Greater is he that is now in us than he who is in the world. And so sin is not depressing. It's something that we need to meet head on. And we want to make sure, especially in the context of this podcast, that we are fortified correctly because here's the deal. Our friends are going to disappoint us just like we disappoint them. And so let's self-assess. I want to share a sentence with you. It's not long. It's only seven words, but it's two parts. And here's my question. As you listen to this sentence, where would you put the accent mark? Where would you put the emphasis on the first part of the sentence or the second part of the sentence? Now, it's not a trick question, but where you typically put the emphasis on this sentence will reveal a lot about you and especially how you think about those who are closest to you. Here's the sentence. It goes like this. You have sinned and you need restoration. Now you have two choices. You can place the accent mark on the fact of a person's sin. That would be the first part of the sentence. You have sinned. Or you can set the mark on the truth of the gospel's restorative powers. That's the second part of the sentence. You need restoration. Now, where you place the accent mark in your relationships, as I said, it will speak to you and how you think about those relationships. But not only how you think about the relationships, it will speak fantastically well of what you believe about the gospel. Because if you usually place the accent mark on a friend's sin rather than the restorative power of the gospel, you need a gospel orientation of the mind. If you can do this, go back to your last five people disappointments. What were the last five disappointments that you experienced through the people who are closest to in your in your life, your friends, your family, your small group, in your church, in your work, wherever it may be. And as you think about their disappointment, and let's just say we're talking about sin here, they sin. As you think about their disappointment, how do you how do you remember reacting? Did you place the accent mark on the fact of their disappointment, their sin, what they did wrong? Or did you immediately mobilize your thoughts and think, oh, my soul, I am on God's restoration team, and I have just been presented with an opportunity. I can speak into this because I am a gospelized friend. Now, everybody doesn't respond that way as a gospelized friend who's mobilized because they're on God's restoration team. In too many cases, people just get ticked when they're disappointed by that person, especially if that person has done it again. And again, I'm talking about friends who are saved or unsaved, because in this context of this podcast, it doesn't matter. If a person sins, we want to be there with the gospel. And so I want to talk about three potential conditions of a person's heart that fuels the motivation to place the accent mark on the sin committed 
rather than on the power and the hope found in the gospel. And the first potential condition of the heart, I call it surprise. You're caught by surprise when a person does something disappointing, makes a mistake, or sins. To be surprised, astonished, or amazed when a person sins is an insufficient understanding of the gospel. Way back in the Garden of Eden, a man and a woman chose to sin. You can read all about it in the first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 3. Begin at verse number 6, and you will see the fall of humanity. Their decision, Adam and Eve, to not believe God, choosing to trust Satan, became a big problem for us because... They were the people who produced us. A clean thing cannot come out of an unclean thing, which means sin spread to all of us. And that's what Paul was teaching us in Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Paul said this, Just as sin came into the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all have sin. You can go deeper into this in Romans chapter 3. Paul continues, or actually he said this before chapter 5. He said, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And then he says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, which you are very aware of, out of Romans 3.23. Why are you surprised after all of that? When your friend, when your relative, saved or lost, sins. The universality of sin does not allow anyone to escape from committing it, like death and taxes. And it does not matter who you are. A preacher, a peasant, for all have sinned. Christian, non-Christian, we all have a common problem. In fact, John says that if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another in the blood of Jesus. His son cleanses us from all sin. He goes on to say, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. The last thing that should happen to us when we hear about a person sinning is shock, surprise. To place the accent mark on their sin rather than being ready to restore them is woefully inadequate in any relationship. Personally, I would not want to surround myself with people who are surprised at my ongoing battles with sin. I don't need their astonishment. I need their help. Each time I've started a small group, now this is a true story, Every time I have told the members of that group that I will sin against every one of them in the group. Now, that's an easy prophecy to make because I understand the fallenness of humanity, particularly my own. And sadly, I have kept my word. And so if you are surprised, shocked, amazed, caught off guard by someone's sin, you really need to rethink this doctrine of harmoniology called the doctrine of sin. The second condition that could be going on in a person's heart, in addition to surprise, it could be anger, sinful anger I am talking about here. Another way a person places the accent mark on sin rather than the restorative efforts of 
the sinning person what they need is by choosing anger as a response to someone's mistakes. This reaction is another's failure uh, to another's failure. It doesn't help. And to be honest, sinful anger to someone's sin doesn't make sense. If you're mad with me because I sin, I mean, I would have to assume that your anger is because you don't want me to sin any longer. But if you don't want me to sin any longer, may I give you a tip? Becoming sinfully angry at me doesn't help. It's an illogical approach to soul restoration. The person who chooses sinful anger as a response to someone's sin is sabotaging the redemptive process of change. And if this is happening, it would be wise to explore what in the world is going on in the heart of the sinfully angry responder. Now, James gives us insight into that. The angry passage is James chapter 4, beginning in verse number 1, and you can work your way on down, but I'll go ahead and give you the punchline. What James is saying to the person who responds sinfully to someone else, the reason you do that is because there is something you want that you are not getting and in this case, the angry person is more interested in themselves than the person who has fallen in the great cosmic battle that entangles all of us. Rather than mobilizing all their energy and resources to pick up the fallen Christian or to pick up the fallen non-Christian, the angry person stands over the fallen person while berating them for falling it's like approaching a car accident, getting out of the vehicle, and yelling at the people who are strewn all over the highway. This reaction is not a wise move. But when it is the move, there is a definite disconnect in the mind of the first responder, the person who should be mobilizing to be redemptive rather than antagonistic. If you are a parent, and I see this all the time with parents, by the way, because parents can be so frustrated with their children because children are immature. Some of them are beyond immature. They are some form of rebelling, and it's so easy to forget what our roles are as redemptive agents in their lives, and it's so easy to become antagonistic. The sin of others is our call to restore, which is what Paul told us in Galatians 6.1. Let me share that passage with you because it's so good. He said, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Paul goes on to say, keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. There's a lot packed into this verse. I just want to share a couple things. If the person is caught in sin, which is what I'm talking about in this podcast, Paul says you who are spiritual. The context here is those of you who have the Spirit. Those of you who call yourself Christians, you have the Spirit. Therefore, you are empowered to respond spiritually, to restore this person, to put them back together again. Cartetizo is the word. 
And he says to do this in the spirit of gentleness. That's sentence one. Sentence two is, I'm glad he added this. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. And that is exactly what I'm talking about under this point. You are tempted. He says that restoration efforts are for those who are spiritual. The implication is that if a person is more angry at the sin committed than engaged in the redemptive efforts needed to restore, there is something wrong with their spirituality. You're not as spiritual as you think you are, as you want to be, or as you want others to think you are. It could be the first responder is not a Christian. Maybe the angry person here who is responding sinfully to the person who sinned, maybe they're not a Christian. And if they're not a Christian, well, they can't be spiritual. They can't respond spiritually. That's why they get angry. They are natural people, as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 2.14. Without the Spirit of God illuminating their minds regarding redemptive opportunities, they will never be able to see opportunities that are perceived spiritually. If the person is a Christian, though, and is still responding angrily, still focused on the sin committed rather than the redemptive needs of the person who sinned, there is a functional idol that someone needs to dig out of the responder's heart. There is something the angry person wants that is more important to them than what the sinning person needs. I want what I want right now, and it doesn't matter what the fallen person needs right now. The most common place where you'll find this kind of false worship is within family constructs. Typically, it's when a family member's sin is interfering with what the angry person wants Their idol is being neglected, which is the cause of their anger, and that's straight out of the James 4, 1 through 3 playbook. And I would encourage you to read those three verses plus the others that are following as well. What are the conditions of the heart of an individual who responds sinfully to the sin of others? One could be surprise, which means they need a reorientation of the gospel in their minds. Number two could be angry, which means they have a false worship structure set up in their hearts. And then number three is condemnation. Now, a common form of anger is condemnation. And so what I've done here is I pulled this word condemnation out of the anger basket because I want to highlight it. And the reason I want to highlight it is because condemnation is one of the more accessible manifestations of anger that we will grab hold to to beat up a a fallen person. Anger, as used in my previous section that I was just sharing, it says this. Let me give you a quote. What you're doing is keeping me from getting my idols stroked, that false worship thing I was talking about. So I'm going to let you have it. That's how anger can iterate. But condemnation is a little bit different. Let me give you another quote. The angry person says, I am better than you are. And my criticalness is one of the ways that I can remind you how I am better than you are. Now, while anger and condemnation flow out of the same self-righteous heart, they have different objectives. Anger is manipulation. Quote, It is a way to get the person to change so I can get what I want rather than helping the person change because they need restoration. 
That's anger as manipulation. Now here's condemnation. It's flaunted arrogance. Quote, whenever I critique a person, I'm saying I'm better than they are. There could be a few reasons for this kind of critical condemning spirit. Here are two of the more common ones. Quote, I believe I'm better than you are, so it's natural for me to remind you of your failures critically. This is who I am, a self-righteous, arrogant person. Here's another way of thinking about it. Quote, I want to feel better about myself, and one of the ways I can feel feed my pride is by letting you know how awful you are. Now, either way, a person's failure is a self-righteous person's opportunity to mobilize by highlighting what the person did wrong. Within this schema, a person's sin becomes the fodder to feed the wicked heart of the self-righteous idolater. And so three possible conditions of a person's heart who responds sinfully to the failures of another. One is surprise, two is anger, three is condemnation. I want to finish with this. Let me state it this way. Grace has broad borders. A person who understands the gospel may be disappointed by the sin of others. That's that's expected. But those sins do not control them. That's essential. There is no surprise in the heart of the gospel-centered person who experiences people's sin. They expect fallen people to fall, though they do not uncharitably judge them and are not cynical or suspicious regarding them. They are a true biblicist. They know Adam fell, and we all fell with him. They have experienced the profundity of the gospel and are being transformed by his power. They can say, like Paul said to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.3, he said, share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. And so like a steady soldier, they are vigilant and ready for the call to action. When the flaming darts of the evil one pierces and fails a comrade, the gospelized man or woman girds up their loins and enlist in the battle. As First Peter said in 1.13, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded. The gospelized person is ready, willing, able to set aside whatever they hope for while seeking the greater good of a friend in need. This quote-unquote setting aside what you want for the good of others is at the heart of the gospel. It's the mind God wants you to have. As Paul said in Philippians 2, 3 and following, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not to your own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. The gospel person places the accent mark on restoration because spiritual people are empowered to do this, which is why Christians have the advantage over our culture. We have an answer. We're not stuck on the sin. We have already moved forward toward redemptive solutions. Only the gospel can give us this kind of access and power. It is crucial that we give people broad borders to be who they are, 
to trim grace down to what you want, to what you expect, to what you demand, or what you think you deserve will circumvent your role in what the gospel can do through you for others. There is no sinner or sin outside of God's ability to redeem. We must not restrict it by expecting people not to sin. Give them room to wobble. Give them space to be who they are. If you don't, you may tempt them to seek other means to meet your unreasonable expectations. For example, if your standard response to a person's sin is surprise, anger, or condemnation, you will tempt them to lie. If I responded to my children in any of the ways that I've listed here, I would be training them to guard themselves against letting me know about their failures. Why would they want to tell me the truth if all they are going to get from me is a verbal assault? Who wants someone yelling at them? Sinning in response to sin is the quickest way to disqualify yourself from being God's being on God's restoration team. The poor sin responder will not get the call from the sinning person the next time they make a mistake. If they have sin, they certainly don't need your sin on top of their sin. Shall I state the obvious here? It doesn't help. The gospel gives us more intelligence than this. Now, I do not want anyone to sin. I do not want to give permission for people to sin I do not want to sin or create situations where I have a sin tolerance. I don't want any of these things. But with that said, the truth is that I will sin, and so will you. We must move past the ever-present reality of personal failure and think more about how to be ready when the inevitable happens. If you do not do this, you will not be able to help the person you want to stop sinning. There is something intellectually dishonest about a person who says they want their friend to stop sinning but does not manifest the grace to help them to cease from sinning. Now, intellectually dishonest is a fanciful way of saying there is some wickedness operating in the heart of the person who claims Christ but does not act like Christ to others. To not be willing to show a similar kind of mercy that God has revealed to you is missing the mark of the gospel by a mile. I want to wrap this up by doing a little self-examination. Back to my self-assessment question. If you're more apt to place the accent mark on the sin rather than the gospel, then I want you to listen to these questions and let them be a helpful way to examine why you aren't doing this. And I also appeal to you to get some help. Stop shooting yourself in the foot, as well as the feet of those, of those that you should be restoring. Here are five questions I want you to think about. Number one, will you ask your spouse, or if you're not married, will you ask a close friend, where they perceive your accent mark, especially regarding that person who disappoints you. Do you put the accent mark on what they do wrong or the restorative power of the gospel? Number two, if you place it more on the sin rather than on the gospel, why are you more sin-centered than gospel-centered? 
Number three, what is operating in your heart that motivates you to respond this way? Now, I mentioned three things. Surprise, which needs a gospel reorientation. Or anger, which means you're not getting something you want. Or condemnation, you're just self-righteous and looking down on another person. But maybe it's something else. But what is operating in your heart? You can't put it off if you can't identify it. Number four, what has hindered you from becoming a gospelized person? Meaning, what are the controlling motives of your heart? And then finally, number five, what is your practical and active plan for change? Will you tell someone who's competent enough to help you with what is going on in your heart? Make those plans for change and implement them. If this is your normal sinful reaction to those who sin against you, then you're not going to be able to amputate this. You're not going to be able just to get up in the morning and shake yourself and it be gone. No, this is a mortification issue. It's going to take more work. You're going to have to take the vitality out of it. You're going to have to kill it dead, and it will take you a while, more than likely, to work through this. And so you need a plan, a practical plan, until you can become that person that is characterized as placing the accent mark on the restorative power of the gospel than the sin that people commit. You'll know if you've gotten there by that most annoying person in your life. Please, if we can help you, let us know how we can help. RickThomas.net. Ask your questions there. Thanks for listening. Your Daily Drive is a production of rickthomas.net, a global community that is seeking to live more productive and inspiring lives. If you'd like to learn more about our community, please go to rickthomas.net, rickthomas.net.